TCL.com. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Enjoy more of the things you love with TCL. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. That's fair. He's going to score. Bucket for third. There were five triples in Thursday night's game. He corks it to left center and chased by Puckett. He caught it. That fence is 13 feet high. Swings at the arm motion. Into deep left center for Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow night. Yes, welcome in to another episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events, games, trades, moments. I'm Phil Mackey. We've got Judd Zolgad here. We've got Derek Wetmore from the Score North Twin Show, Declan Goff. And this episode is all about Game 6, gentlemen, of the 1991 World Series. Kent Herbeck is scheduled to join the show a little bit later on here. If you are new to Minnesota Sports Rewind, you can find all 17 current episodes bingeable wherever you find podcasts. Minnesota Sports Rewind. Just search it in Apple. Search it in Spotify. Or download the free Score North mobile app where you can also enter this week, draft week, the Draft K 1K giveaway. We are giving away $1,000 to somebody who correctly predicts who the Purple will select with their first pick in this 2020 draft. Open the Score North app, register, enter through listener rewards, and enter the player you think will win. But when you guys watch this game back, and we'll go through setting the scene and a summary of events, uh, what was the number one thing that stood out to you guys as you watch this game back? I don't know how long it's been since it's it's on sometimes on MLB Network and Fox Sports North has been running it like every other day. It seems like the last couple of weeks. But what what stood out the most to you guys? It was fascinating to me because I grew up here watching baseball, but I'm not quite old enough to have experienced this in real time. So I just sort of know, you know, the legend of it, the myth, the the. The mythical figure that is Kirby Puckett and that catch. And then it happens in the game as I'm watching it through. I know what happens in the game. I know the outcome of the series. But it didn't feel like as big of a moment when you're watching it. Like, I feel like they really undersold it. And then in the time since, the 29 years since or whatever, it has built into this mythology where, you know, there's the the Kirby silhouette out at their spring training complex in Fort Myers. I I. I don't know if we realized at the time what a big moment that would become in Minnesota sports history. So I was actually, I didn't go to that game. I was at work that night on the, um, in the sports department at the Star Tribune. And that game, keep in mind too, the weird thing, if you go back and look through the Twins in the World Series in 87 and 91, is that they won every home game. And that they never won a road game. They, they won the first two in the Metrodome against the Cardinals in 87 and then lost three consecutive in St. Louis and then came back and won game six and seven. And so by the time you got to game six in 91, there was sort of this belief of the Metrodome is the key. Now, I have always contended that I think the 91 team was a better baseball team than the 87 team. And yeah. in, in fact, there were only seven players back from the 87 team who were on the 91 roster. But there was this belief, I think, by that night that between the Metrodome and Kirby Puckett, <laughs> that it was going that somehow it, it was going to be fine. And then, of course, we learned after that 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 was the get on my back game, boys, where Puckett shows up and basically calls the team together and says, "I've got this. 
Uh, the one thing that's really interesting, if you go through the statistics, guys, from that series, is the amount of Twins regulars who did not hit, and that includes Kirby Puckett. I had completely forgotten. Kirby Puckett through the first five games was not good. And Kirby Puckett in game seven, which of course was the Jack Moore special, which the Twins only needed to score the one run for, was not that great. But that game sort of, I, I think, I've always said this, it put the exclamation point yeah. on Puck's career. The other thing that you do forget, and, and going back and watching um, Buck and McCarver on the CBS call, you do forget how damn loud that stadium got. Like the constant din of noise and the music that they played, rock and roll part two. I mean, listen to constantly, this clip. Yes. So this is the first inning, okay? And obviously, like the fir- I think the first inning and then late innings are going to be the loudest because fans are jacked up at the start of a game and then if it's close, late. But mm-hmm. this is... So Kirby Puckett in this game put the Twins in front three different times. That's the thing. I th- we focus so much on the walk-off, obviously, and the the catch against the plexiglass. But Kirby Puckett had a triple in the first inning, and then he had a sack fly that drove in a run to put the Twins in front the second time, and then the third time, obviously, the game winner. But listen to the crowd noise in the first inning. That's fair. He's going to score. Puckett for third. There were five triples in Thursday night's game. Dude, that's like peak football noise, Carver's man. Carver's got to yell over the crowd. It might be louder. My favorite uh, demonstration that CBS had in the late innings of Game 6 to how loud that building was was a shot of uh, bullpen coach Rick Stelmasek with his foot on the phone yeah. in the bullpen because he couldn't hear it. Yeah. So his foot is there to feel the jingle That's amazing. because you couldn't hear. And, and it's true. You could not hear yourself thinking. In fact, going back to 87, was it a was it a Tigers or Cardinals player? The legend has it threw up because it got so loud. His head, head just, just ringing, man. He just puked. So in this, so the Twins come back from losing three games in Atlanta. They actually had a chance in game three. They, they lost that game in 12 innings, 5-4. to four. That was their chance to go up three games to none in the series and basically... Basically end it. Uh, they they lose three in Atlanta. They come back for this game six, and they're down three games to two. Puckett puts the Twins ahead three different times. Robs the extra base hit off the plexiglass in the third inning off the bat of Ron Gant. It probably would have scored Terry Pendleton from first base because if that ball hits the plexiglass and Puckett is up against the wall, the ball ricochets back toward. And he's around second, right? Yes, he I was. Think by yeah. the time Puck catches, he that almost ball, got doubled off. Yes. That so, throw, by the way, Kirby Puckett's throw <laughs> from deep left oh, center. He had, he had a cannon. cannon for Absolute an cannon. So uh, the Twins jump out right away to a 2 nothing lead off Steve Avery. RBI triple by Kirby Puckett, scoring Chuck Knobloch. And then an RBI, sort of a weak single by Shane Mack, scoring Puckett. We're going to circle back to this next part here because I've got questions. But National League MVP Terry Pendleton ties the game in the fifth with a two-run homer off Scott Erickson. Then the scoring goes like this. Puckett sack fly in the bottom of the fifth scoring Gladden. Ron Gant beats out a double play ball in the seventh after some dinking and dunking and like an infield single here, uh, scoring a run from third base. Puckett's walk off then was the next run and the final run off Charlie Liebrandt in the bottom of the 11th inning. There have been, gentlemen, 16 walk off home runs in World Series history. At the time of Puckett's walk off, there had been only eight. I just want to fly through these because. It is not often. Like, the fact that baseball's been around for over a century, 
century and a half, and there's only been 16 of these in the history of the World Series. The first one ever was in 1949. Tommy Henrich for the there's a lot of Yankees in this, mm-hmm. both walk-offs and walk-offs against. Uh, a hitter named Dusty Rhodes for the New York Giants yep. in 1954. 1954, yeah. Eddie Matthews for Milwaukee, game four of the 1957 World Series. Bill Mazeroski, one of the most famous walk-off home runs in baseball history, game seven of 1960. Mickey Mantle, game three, 1964. Carlton, then we had to wait 10 more years to get Carlton Fisk's walk-off at Fenway in 1975. Then another 13 years until we had two walk-offs in the 1988 World Series, the famous Kirk Gibson walk-off in Game 1, and then the less-remembered Mark McGuire walk-off in Game 3 of that World Series. That's very true, because I don't recall that yeah. one. <laughs> Mark McGuire walked off in the ninth inning to uh, win the Game 2-1. to one. And Then Puckett's was the ninth all-time walk-off in yeah. 1991. Since then, Joe Carter ended a World Series in 1993. Chad Curtis for the Yankees in 1999 off Mike Remlinger. Derek Jeter, the famous one in 2001, Game 4, off Byung-Hyun Kim. That was like one of five disaster moments for Byung-Hyun Kim in the playoffs. Patrick still curses him to this day. Yeah, it was bad. Uh, Alex Gonzalez for the Marlins in 2003 off Jeff Weaver. Scott Pudsednik in 2005 for the White Sox off Brad Lidge. Then we go to 2011, and we'll circle back on this as well. David Freeze for the Cardinals off Mark Lowe. And the recent one was Max Muncy in the 18th inning for the Dodgers off Nathan Eovaldi for the Red Sox in 2018. And that's your list of, of walk-off hormones. So key question number one for you guys, when you think back to the 1991 World Series, uh, I want to I bring this sort of into the 2020 pantheon of how we watch sports. We'll start with you, Derek. How do you guys think social media would have enhanced or not the viewing experience of Game 6 of the 1991 World Series. I was trying to think back on this because, like, so, and this is another question for another time, but with how he pitched, how is Scott Erickson not a bigger Twins legend than he is? I mean, this is your season is on the line, and, I mean, I didn't watch every one of his starts, but it didn't, and even Jim Cott, the sideline reporter for the game was talking about like i don't know if he has it all there today well, and, and and don't forget if i'm not mistaken boys he had been hammered in game yes. three and, and there was I, I recall this there was a feeling going into that game about scott just get through yes basically it, just it get gutsy. through five but but there was no expectation of greatness it was can he get through about five or six possibly and get to the bullpen so i feel like in baseball today two of the things that could get you to watch Let's say you're not watching the game, but you're poking around on Twitter and you see somebody saying like, oh, you got to check this out. One, a guy's dealing. Two, a guy's, you know, tiptoeing through a minefield. And I felt like that's what Erickson was doing a little bit with that Braves lineup. So I don't know if it would have enhanced the viewing experience for watching it, but it might have brought more people to it. More people would have seen Puck. More people would have seen, you know, Shane Mack's big day that that kind of goes unsung. And I feel like it it probably would have attracted a bigger audience. But I guess nothing really... Judd, did anything jump out to you that you would have been like, oh, Twitter needed to be here for this to have happened? Uh, no, not not the word needed, but would it have gotten interesting? Absolutely. I'm going to run through uh, for you guys the cumulative averages of a few Twins regulars in this series and tell me that you wouldn't have had fans whining and moaning and being upset. Chili Davis hit 222 in that World Series. Greg Gagne hit 167. Danny Gladden, our buddy, 233. Kent Herbeck, 115. Shane Mack, 130. Uh, 
Puck, 250. So I do think that you you would have had people like me, alarmists, saying, what the hell is yeah. going on here? Um, I also can say definitively that the nice thing about things like Twitter not being there then, too, is the amount of attention actually paid pitch to pitch was huge. Yeah, I contend now, just as sports fans, it's so hard because we like pick up our phone and tweet or look at tweets, and, sure. it, and all of a sudden the count is 2-1. and one. Yeah, also worth noting, too, this was this World Series telecast as a whole, all through uh, the seven games, drew an overall national Nielsen rating of 24 and a 39 share for CBS. Game 7 drew a 32.2 rating and a 49 share. <laughs> as of 2016, based on the write-up that I found, no subsequent World Series has approached either number in national TV ratings. So in the modern day, like it is the... It is still the bar for how many people watch the World Series, but the difference in 1991 compared to 2020 with baseball specifically is the World Series was appointment viewing before anything got good, right? Like you you would sit down to watch game one of the yeah, World Series absolutely, as a family and as a society. And now baseball, like there, are, it's definitely still appointment viewing for hardcore baseball fans, but... The ratings really only spike if something's getting good or it's in big markets, right? And that's where I think social media would have played in today in that a World Series between the Twins and the Braves doesn't draw a fourth of the country. Right. Not but if like if there's drama in every game and there's storylines building and, oh, my God, you got to see what's happening in the moment, that's where social media helps build that brush fire. A couple things, too. We could have, not in this game, but, you know, we could have had a GIF within... 15 seconds to prove once and for all that Ron Gant was out. And <laughs> the guy who is sitting in like left center field, who as Kirby goes up to make the catch, he's already standing there with his fists in the air. A fan in the stands is completely glued in with the game. That dude would have his own commercial because he might have also caught the home run ball based on like <laughs> they were right in the same area. So that dude's getting on national TV. He's a Twitter sensation overnight. I don't know who it was. I don't know if I've. Has anybody dug up any stories on that guy or whatever? But that is one thing that social media would have made better. We could have seen a periscope from that dude's seat. How about the, how about the fact, too, guys, that the uh, Kirby catch, the great catch, and then also you see this in his home run, that this stadium had, and we saw it for a long time, plexiglass. Yeah. Like, how weird does that look now? <laughs> In a ba- in a ballpark, in what we called a ballpark, and yes, it was not a ballpark really, but how funny is that to see Kirby go up to, uh, to make what, without the plexiglass, uh, saves a home run in the third inning of that game, obviously, and instead it's like hockey boards. It is funny. Yeah. I mean, it is, in some ways it is very fitting for Minnesota, the state of hockey, to have a hockey rink-looking left field situation. But they decided that there were too many home runs hit, like in 82, 83, around that time. So how were they going to stop that? Let's put up plexiglass. (laughs) All right, key question number three here for you guys. Does Kirby Puckett make the Hall of Fame on the first ballot without this game? And I'll even add, does Kirby Puckett make the Hall of Fame, period, without this game? I think the answer, the second part of your question, I think the answer is he does. I don't think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer without that game because those two, the 87 and 91 World Series are his defining marks. I get that. But if you were to, if if Puckett was to have a, a painting about him, you know, if there was one defining painting about Kirby, it's that catch, it's the home run, it's the fist pump, 
it's that game. It's the fact that the legend is that he told his teammates, get on my back, boys, and I got you. In game six, in a deciding game. So do I think that Kirby Puckett goes into the Hall of Fame, Derek, without that game? Yes, I probably do. Do I think he goes in, into the Hall of Fame on his first uh, ballot or year of eligibility in 2001? I don't think so. I think he goes in, but I think he has to wait without Game 6. I think Game 6 defines his career. I completely agree with you, and it's weird for me to say that. So I'm a stats guy. I view baseball through the prism of math and percentages and probabilities and, again, didn't grow up watching Kirby Puckett. It just wasn't my era of baseball. And yet, as much as this sport worships statistics, you know, 3,000 hits is sacred, 20 20 wins a season, whatever – you can come up with all of the benchmarks just off the top of your head. Statistically, Kirby Puckett is not one of the best outfielders who ever played, but the story to Judd's point is exactly that. It's the jump on my back. It's the game six catch. It's his performance at the plate in game six that forced a game seven. I mean, this guy was a legend, uh, not only just in this market, but around the league while he played. Um, And the thing that I looked at, Instead of just boiling it down to raw stats, because you just have to take me at my word, if if you look at, there are outfielders who had better careers than Puck who are not going to be Hall of Famers. That's just a fact. But the story definitely helps enhance it. And if you're looking for one number, go back and look at all the years that he got MVP votes. I think that does change it for guy. You know, he makes, what was it, 10 All-Star games in a row to close his career. But he was pretty regularly getting MVP votes and finished, you know, in the top two, three, a couple of years. That, that to me, might be what pushes him over the edge. So I think, just to amend what Derek said, I think I would say there are outfielders who have better regular season statistics or more longevity than Kirby Puckett who aren't going to get into the Hall of Fame. And the one that comes to mind right away, and maybe he does get in at some point, Gary Sheffield. So Gary Sheffield played... 22 seasons in the major leagues and Kirby Puckett only played 12 because Sheffield got called up when he was 19 years old. Kirby Puckett didn't get called up till he was 24, didn't enter the twin system till he was 22 and Puckett's career came to an end and he was still an unbelievable player at age 35 coming off. Like Derek said, the 10 straight all-star games he batted the year before he woke up with no vision in one of his eyes. Kirby Puckett at age 35 in 1995 batted 314, slugged over 500, had 23 homers, 39 doubles, and 99 RBIs on a bad Twins team. He was still an unbelievable player. Probably could have hit. I mean, a guy who was just that good at hitting bad balls and who could hit 300 in his sleep probably plays until he's 40 years old, like Paul Molitor, becomes a DH at some point. Like He, he might have played into his early 40s and was just a guy who was going to hit 280 or 290 and drive in some runs. So the, the the counting stats aren't there on the level of like a Gary Sheffield. Kirby Puckett, 200 career home runs. Gary Sheffield, 500 career home runs. But I view peak greatness as much more important than longevity. And I'm not saying that Gary Sheffield wasn't one of the best players in baseball for a while, but he didn't have a game six moment or three of them like Kirby Puckett did. And so if you're on the fence about somebody and you want to say, you know, Jack Morris, his ERA would be a little high for the Hall of Fame, but right. the thing that puts him over the top would be the Game 7 performance. Or Kirby Puckett, I don't know, the counting stats aren't really there. He only played 12 years, doesn't have 3,000 hits, only has 200 home runs. Right, but a walk-off home run to send his team to a Game 7, I think, weighs heavily. Sure. 
And if Puck, so if uh, if Puck had decided in '96, I'm just done too. I think the narrative changes as well. Yeah. I think when when you have one or two defining games, and I'm talking about nationally televised defining games, and that is is coupled with what could certainly be considered a sad to tragic ending to your career, people are going to say what Phil just said, which is, oh, hold on a second. If if um, he wakes up that day and his eyesight is fine, he plays till 40, he gets 3,000 hits. But I do think the key to Kirby being a first ballot Hall of Fame player is that game. Mm-hmm. I really do. Totally. Well, six gold gloves uh, also. Like the fact mm-hmm. that he was... but And that night defined everything. Think about it. Yeah. The catch. The catch. The throw the that almost doubles off Gant. The leadership. The at-bats. The leadership. Exactly. It was every, everything that people had heard about Kirby happened that night. Also worth noting, he ranks 53rd on the all-time Major League Baseball list of batting average leaders. And almost everybody in front of him on this list is in the Hall of Fame. Like some notable, Shoeless Joe Jackson is third all-time, and he's not in the Hall of Fame because of non-batting average reasons. <laughs> There's other guys in here that I, I'd have to go through and dig. But, I mean, if you have a 318 career batting average, that alone, and a game six moment, that alone puts puts you pretty high up. Before we get to Kent Herbeck here in a little bit, I want to play some audio that we found here on uh, on YouTube. Somebody did a mashup, and this will lead into our next key question. All right, a home run. This, by the way, is the 63rd game six in World Series history out of a total of 107 World Series. I remember one working it with your dad in '91. Kirby Puckett, Jack's famous call. We'll see you tomorrow night. One inside, 2-0. Nothing else. We'll see you tomorrow night. Breeze hits it in the air to center. We will see you tomorrow night. Swings at the arm. Into deep left center for Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow night. Right. A, where does the original We'll See You Tomorrow Night rank among your all-time favorite iconic calls? And then what were your thoughts on the mixed reaction when Joe Buck honored his dad in the moment, by the way? I mean, it's like you probably go in there thinking, well, this is a game seven or game six, and so it's on his mind. Mm-hmm. But to to pull that off in the moment like that, another walk-off home run, your thoughts on people criticizing Joe Buck for honoring Jack Buck? They can get lost. Yeah. <laughs> bleep, <laughs> them, bleep them. <laughs> it was awesome. It yeah. was awesome. And Joe's call on the Diggs touchdown catch, remarkable. Yeah. But here's the starting point. For why I think Jack Buck's Game 6 call is probably the greatest single just bang call. One is, go back now and watch that series. And Jack Buck, aging broadcaster at the time, does not consistently have his fastball. There are moments where he gets names wrong. So we're not talking about Jack Buck at the height of Jack Buck's career. And to come up with that call in that moment to put an exclamation point on that game for Kirby... But here's where I will say um, a lot of guys, including our buddy Jim Nance, could go to school. I timed it last night. From the moment the word night leaves Jack Buck's mouth, we'll see you tomorrow night, period. There is a minute and 24 until anybody talks again. Perfect. They pick up the sound from Puckett, who just says, yeah, yeah. And everyone's just saying, nobody swears. Everyone's just saying, yeah. TK walks up. To Puckett and says, 
and says, swing the bat there, baby, one more time. And that's all. But you can pick it up. And the next thing you hear at a minute 25 is McCarver. They replay it, and McCarver starts talking. Jack Buck never talks again for probably two minutes, if not more. Brilliant. It is perfect. It is brilliant. And here's my last point. It also culminated within 88 to 91 is three years. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. In a three-year period, one man making two of the greatest home run calls to end World Series games ever. CBS Radio, Game 1, Dodgers, A's, Gibson, home run. Vince Scully called that on NBC, but the call you always hear is Jack Buck on CBS Radio. I don't believe what I just saw. Three years after on TV, a medium that screams, me, 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 make it about me. We'll see you tomorrow night, period, a minute 25 of silence. Brilliant. So 88, we get we get Jack Buck's brilliant, I don't believe what I just saw. And then we also get Vince Scully's uh, on a night, what was the line? The improbable has happened, whatever the, the line was. Like two of the on, most legendary. On a season of the improbable, the impossible has happened, something yes, like that. It's yeah. a great call, yeah. but we'll see you tomorrow night's off the charts. Yeah. I think it's epic, and it for me, as I was racking my brain what it's a better call, again, neither of these that I got witnessed live, but do you believe in miracles? I think has to be number one, I think. And then this to me is number two, just because of the you know the lore of growing up in Minnesota, a baseball fan. So all this right. was it. I'm going to poke at. Do you believe in miracles? Okay, and I know that I'm doing this in the presence of Judd's hockey show. Okay, well, it is due because I think I just argued against Kirby Puckett as a first ballot Hall of Famer <laughs> on the Twin Show. So it is one of the iconic all time calls. Do you believe in miracles? But what was the score of the game? Five to three. I'd have to go back and look at the final score. Four two. Four to two. They're up by mm-hmm. yeah. They're so up. when lead in hockey, guys. When he yeah two goalie. When he had made when he made the call. Yeah. The game was not in question. So he had time to think. Like he had several minutes to think about what he was going to say in that moment. Sure. It's fine. I'm not. I'm sure if you're a baseball play-by-play guy, you are running scenarios through your head. It's yeah, extra innings, happen? a tie game. Right. So I'm not saying that it wasn't also pre-planned, but it right. felt very spontaneous in that moment. That's right. And actually, that hits on a point that I was going to say that before the game, the the pre-game stuff on CBS was kind of, um, is this the night the Braves win the World Series? It was all. It was really Atlanta focused, and and then kind of like a side note that well, the Twins might hope to stave them off and and have another crack at this thing. Mm-hmm. Knowing the outcome of the game, that was kind of interesting. There's some dramatic irony there. But then throughout the course of the game, guys, with whether it was Jim Cott down in the sort of the camera well area, the tone started to shift a little bit of like, ah, eh, something's something's happening here, and Cott even calls it. I was gonna say Cott did call that. It's it's incredible I think to in hear, the knowing knowing how this game ends. Obviously, watching it back after the fact, it is kind of incredible to hear it. This is the Brave Show. We'll see what happens. First pitch coming up next to ah uh, these twins. They're not going away, and that narrative sort of got thicker and thicker and thicker. And then of course Kirby walks it off in eleven. Yeah, Cott called it though. It in was, the eighth, right? Mm-hmm. It was he really said that. fun. He said, yeah, to just kind of sit and listen to gonna... that sort of narrative start to shift towards Minnesota and culminates with the exclamation point, mm-hmm. we'll see you tomorrow But now. Jack Buck was, was in, in fact, that was a Buck's last series that he did for CBS because by 92, uh, they had replaced him with uh, Sean McDonough. Mm. And so, you know, Jack Buck, that's not, that's not a young whippersnapper on the ball consistently, Jack Buck. And for him, for that to be his last national huge call, think about that for a second. It is, uh, it is a great way to go out. When we come back here, a quick pause on Minnesota Sports Rewind. 
Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, and Derek Wetmore talking about the 1991 World Series Game 6 specifically. We'll do a couple things. We'll talk to our friend Kent Herbeck. And I found something that might make you feel even worse for Charlie Liebrand, who is the pitcher that gave up the home run to Kirby Puckett. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind here on Score North. You're listening to Minnesota Sports Rewind. Listening to Minnesota Sports Rewind. That's fair. He's going to score. Bucket for third. There were five triples in Thursday night's game. Swings at the arm motion. Into deep left center for Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow night. All right, welcome back. Minnesota Sports Rewind. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, Derek Wetmore from the Score North Twin Show. And our next guest is a member of the Twins Hall of Fame. He spent 14 seasons with the Twins, hit nearly 300 home runs in his career, over 1,000 runs driven in. Kent Herbeck, thanks for coming on the show today, Kent. Hey, guys. How you doing? We're doing all right. We're, we wish baseball was, was being played right now. I'm not going to lie. Don't we all? Yep. Don't we all? It's a, it's a little different. It is. So... I want to play. I want to play this clip again from the first day. We're doing a deep dive into Game Six specifically from '91. I just want to play this clip and ask you a question. That's fair. He's going to score. Bucket for third. There were five triples in Thursday night's game. So that was in the first inning. That is about as loud as you'll ever hear a sports stadium, that and then the end. Is there any way you can put into context for us, standing on the field and in the dugout, peak Metrodome noise and what it feels and sounds like? Oh, boy. Well, if you were in the stands that day, or any one of those days, I guess, 87 or 91, um, you almost... I almost felt like you were moving, I guess. It was that noisy, that loud. Um, it, it's one of those deals that uh, the hair on the back of your neck would stand up, and I'm sure the 55,000 people there at those games each day probably tell you the same thing. Um, it definitely was was uh, adrenaline pumping and pretty wild, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> hey, so Ken, t- take us back now to, and I'm sure you've talked about this quite a bit before, but take us back to Game Six, and and not just the uh, pucket home run or the pucket catch off Gant, but what is the truth of the story that Kirby came in and basically either called you guys together and said, you know, I've got this one, boys, or get on my back. Where did that story uh, start that night? And the one thing that I had forgotten is going into Game Six in that series. Puck was three for eighteen, so he hadn't exactly been waking up to that point, and he did it that night. But where does that story basically start with Kirby uh, taking that game on his shoulders and telling you guys he's got it? Well, how far you want to go back? Because Puck used to say that all the time when he walked in the clubhouse. Okay, <laughs> he, he used to say that all the time. Um, you know, jump on today, boys. Uh, and when he'd be walking out of the clubhouse or something going down in the field, he'd say, jump on. Uh, one of the funniest days was when Randy Bush walked by everybody and said, jump on, boys. I'm, I, I'm driving this truck today. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there was always a little fun made about it. I don't know. Somebody must have heard it that night that he said, jump on. Um, you know what? There was nobody tearing it up. I mean, I couldn't hit my butt with both hands. 
um, at all. I struggled big time, but but uh, I haven't. I haven't seen any of that stuff until the last. Well, I just watched a game the other night when it was on here, and and uh, actually watching its entirety. I had no clue what the heck I did, or what everybody else did. Um, you know, of course, everybody remembers the puck home run, but uh, just different plays. And and then watching, then we watched Game Seven here too, and you know the millions of chances everybody had to score some runs in that game. And um, you know, if you don't sit and it's hard to remember every little thing that went on because there were so dang many things that were going on in, in all those games, and they were so close that you had different chances to score runs. You didn't. People hit in double plays, uh, me included, and uh, it was uh, it was something that uh, was kind of fun to watch. Like I said, I hadn't I hadn't watched the, the game in its entirety at all. Uh, you know, I definitely had seen clips of all the highlights, of course, but not the not the lowlights. Um, and different different things that happened during the game. So it was pretty fun to watch it, but it, it's hard to even remember. Like I said, I don't even remember at-bats and stuff that I had. Or you know, I'm trying to think of what the heck did I do this at-bat? Did I walk? Did I strike out? Um, all that kind of stuff. So um, it was kind of fun and, and, and got, the, got the blood pumping again. Herbie, Derek Wetmore here. Hope you're well. And uh, we watched it back the other day, and what you're saying is exactly right. All the chances, both sides, really. Um, there's a shot of you, and I want to ask you about this. In the dugout, in the later innings, and you just look completely relaxed. You're hanging out there. It might have even been extras, and you you know, you know got your, your legs crossed in the dugout, just kind of leaning back, reclining. What was it about that team, Herbie, that, was, that made you guys able to, to be so relaxed in what should have been such a pressure-packed moment. You know what? I think if you, if you, I guess any athlete would say that the more relaxed you can be and, and not get too fired up, the better off you are. And I think that's what made our ball club good. We had everybody on. There was guys, you didn't see a lot of joking around going on, uh, of course, uh, in the dugout that much. But up in the clubhouse, we were pretty loose and, and pretty excited, or, you know, fired up. But, um, TK always used to look at me when I went up to the plate. If I stepped in the box and happened to look over in the dugout, TK would always write an S on his chest when I was standing up there, and that meant don't try to be Superman. And uh, you know, he always tried to you tried to stay within yourself. Only you know, don't try to do too much. And I think that's what everybody was kind of relying on was you know, don't go up there and try to do too much. Even though, I mean, the, the Braves had some excellent pitching. They shut us down pretty good. Uh, along with you know way Jack pitched and Tappany pitched and uh, the pitching was pretty good in that series. Uh, although we did hit some home runs, I guess, but a lot of solo shots and stuff. But um, it was uh, yeah, you tried to stay as relaxed as you could. If you get all up and tense and tight, that um, doesn't work very well. And I think any athlete will tell you that the more relaxed you can be, the better off you're going to play. Yeah. Uh, Ken Herbeck, what, what were your feelings about the plexiglass, the plexiglass Metrodome, and just everything? Like as a, as a fan and somebody who, you know, I I think just observing it from a non-player perspective, I always love the big game feel of the Metrodome. I mean, there's different complaints, like on a Sunday afternoon when it's 75 degrees, like it'd be nice if there was some sun shining, but um, and some of those dormant days in the 90s. But I I don't know if you can beat the big game Metrodome feel in terms of just the crowd noise and the intimidation factor for opponents. What were, what were your perspectives on it as a player? Yeah. You know what they said? They, you know, 
I myself love playing there, and I think uh, you can probably ask a lot of the guys, except for the pitchers. <laughs> uh, the players will say they they love playing there, they love hitting there. I mean, you saw, I saw the ball well at the plate. Um, it was a great place to hit, uh, and like you said, you put fifty thousand people in there, and no, no place was louder because um, the sound couldn't go anyplace. So you know, it stayed right there. So uh, uh, it definitely was a rocking place to, to sit there and watch a baseball game. Uh, of course, after I retired, I, I spent many a days in the dome watching ball games, and it was a horrible place to watch <laughs> baseball. <laughs> it's, it's not like watching baseball at Target Field, that's for sure. Uh, you know, you don't get that experience. But uh, yeah, it definitely was a was a to me a great place to play and a, and a, and a great place for a for a big event like that. Um, of course, it's always going to get louder, but. Boy, it was uh, it was a rocking place. I mean, I had tears when they tore the place down. There's a lot of memories that were good. We had a lot of bad games in there, believe me. But uh, boy, when they uh, they got rid of the dome, it was uh, it was a sad day. Hey, Ken, in going back and watching uh, Game Six and Seven of this uh, series, and not having seen them both in, in a long, long time, what jumped out or surprised you that you had completely forgotten and said, "Yeah, you know what? That was great." Just the, the opportunities that everybody had to score runs, getting guys on first and second. They had guys at second and third with nobody out, uh, with the meat of their order coming up, Pendleton and Gant and who, uh, who else was up, uh, Bream, I guess, or something, the heart of their order. Yep. And them not getting a run off of Jack in game seven, of course, but uh, just the opportunities that we had. I mean, we were, uh, I think I saw a stat that we were one for 10 with runners in scoring pit position and they were two for 10 or something like that mm-hmm. um, during the series. So, um, well, it's the only series that what's gone, was it four extra inning games, I guess, uh, four games, one in the last at bat. Yep. Um, so, you know, the, the, I don't remember all that stuff until I watched um, and, and just the opportunities that guys had, there were some great plays, some great, great blunders, some great plays, um, some great pitching, um, you know, offensively, for somebody who likes offense, there wasn't a lot of offense going on. But, uh, um, you know, you remember the big hits. You remember the, the Gene Larkin hit to, to drive Danny in at the end of the game there. But, you know, great great at bat by Danny. To, he gets his bat busted in half and, and, and hustles out a double at, at to start that inning off. Um, Danny had a heck of a series. He played really well. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it takes everybody. It's just not – one guy, and everybody talks about the puck game. Yeah, puck had a fantastic game, but boy, there's some guys, other guys making some great plays and, and doing some great things during the game as well. All right, all right, Kent. If uh, if you, you were playing baseball in 2020 and it was Game Two of the World Series, and Ron Gant got on first base, does Kent Herbeck in 2020 um, make the move that he did on Gant back then? And furthermore, does Kent Herbeck still think that Ron Gant is called out? What do you think? <laughs> you know what? You know what? I think it's a huge controversy, and I think they replay it, and I think it becomes a cluster bleep. But I don't know the final answer. That's what I, I think. fell off the base. Yeah, what was Herbie supposed? Yeah, to you never heard. You never heard of gravity, Judd? You know, what am I supposed to do? Push him back on? <laughs> it was one of the greatest wrestling moves of, of all time, which, which my partner Mackie here appreciates greatly. It was also very windy in the Metrodome because he day, liked okay? wrestling very... as much as you and Brunanski and the boys did. <laughs> well, I mean, if you sit and watch the play, it, it, it's it's simple as heck. He slides back in. He's safe. Okay. Mm-hmm. He slides back on the base. He stutter steps. One foot 
switches one foot because he's going off the base to put his other foot back on the base. In the meantime, he's running into my thigh, knocking me over. I caught the ball and put the tag on him, and he was just leaning over my leg and fell right over my, my, my leg. My arm is not underneath his leg. My arm is on top of his leg, and he's teeter-tottering over my leg. And, uh, and I mean, if you, if you watch it in that aspect, the whole thing was, was, was Tim McCarver right away got all crazy about Herbeck pulled him off the bag. Well, I, I never <laughs> even pulled him at all. And the guy knocked me off the base. So, uh, and then, and another thing, if you notice, Kevin Tappany completely screwed everything up. And <laughs> I always tell him it was his fault anyway, because he was supposed to be backing up home plate in that situation. Okay. And he ends up, he ends up cutting off the ball in between third and home. Uh, the pitcher is supposed to be backing up home plate on that play, as, as anybody knows or or any coach knows that the ball's hit to the outfield. The pitcher goes back and backs up home plate. Third baseman takes the throw from the outfield. And for some reason, Tap was standing in the middle and, and caught the ball, and I hollered at him, tap, 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 and he fired the ball over to me, and then all hell broke loose over at first base. I just think I think McCarver did go crazy. You are absolutely correct. Gant's just a bad base runner. That's that's what I think. <laughs> Gant laughs He's now. He's a bad base runner. He's a heck of a player. Yeah. He just he he had a hard time with with trying to admit that he, you know, he should have slid, and uh, all his stutter stepping that was going on, and and uh, if I wasn't there, he would have overran the bag big time. He ran into me. Yeah, pretty convincing case, Your Honor, Herbie. I didn't know you were going to be on trial today. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, really, I, I, I ask about that interrogation. Come on, come on, it's a famous World Series play. Kent, thank you so much for coming on, man. And uh, hopefully, we'll we'll see you at Target Field at some point this summer. Fingers crossed. Appreciate well, it, Herbie. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, boys. But uh, hopefully, it does, and and uh, we get to watch some. Finally, some good baseball here. We, the boys, uh, the boys are missing a year that they. Uh, yeah. I think they're going to done some damage. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. All right, Kent, take care, man. Thanks, Herbie. See ya. Take care, boys. Have a good one. That is Bye. Kent Herbeck, Twins Hall of Famer, reminiscing. <laughs> that was awesome. Perspective on, and he's by the way, he's not really kidding. Like, no, no, he's not. Is, no, no, it's all from perspective. Yeah, and, and McCarver went crazy. It was a he, great uh, like answer though when he said, "What do you think?" And uh, you know, just kind of yeah, leave it to you. It's it's all been decided in history. We're good here, <laughs> boys. Circling back here to the end of game six, which is our subject on Minnesota Sports Rewind today. I have something I want to read for you from spring training of 1992. I found this article in the Chicago Tribune, but it was very obviously a syndicated article that was written by uh, I don't know some guy named Dan Lebitard. Down in Florida Never heard of during spring training. Just a young stringer with a, what with a dream and a freelance job. Yeah, I don't know. Can somebody look up what happened to this guy? Some, some Lebitard? Author, Dan Lebitard. Lebitard. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people come and go, guys. In spring of 1992, so the next spring <laughs> after the World Series is over. And Charlie Liebrandt was... Charlie Liebrandt, by the way, a World Series champion with the Royals in 1985. Yep. A really good, crafty pitcher throughout the 80s. And even with the Braves in the early 90s, he was a really good starting pitcher. And he's the one that gave up the home run to Kirby Puckett in Game 6. I'm just going to read from this article. And you guys tell me, key question number three here, does this make you feel worse for Charlie Liebrandt? Okay. From Dan Lebitard. Liebrandt threw a chubby changeup to Minnesota's Kirby Puckett and realized the mistake as soon as the baseball left his fingers. Liebrandt, a soft-throwing pitcher from Illinois, whose success always depended on the people behind him, 
had just lost Game 6 of the World Series without giving his teammates a chance to do anything about it. There's no emptier feeling in baseball than to give up a home run that ends a game. You're alone on the stage watching your pelted pitch sink into the stands and your teammates immediately walk off the field. They are losers because of you. Lee Brandt knows this feeling. He felt it in October after throwing only four pitches. He hasn't thrown a pitch since. Quote from Lee Brandt, I don't like to relive it. I still don't feel comfortable talking about this. This is now four months later. Lee Brandt is still haunted by his mistake, yes. He hasn't mustered the strength to watch a tape of the game and doesn't know if he ever will. He says he might be having nightmares if he hadn't if he had given up the homer to someone other than one of his favorite players, Puckett. He says that if he wasn't so naturally unemotional, he might have wept right there on the Metrodome mound on the night of October 26th. But there are more significant things than baseball, Lee Brandt can tell you now. He realized that a few days after the World Series, when he was starting to feel sorry for himself after Atlanta lost Game 7. Then he learned that his wife's father had died of stomach cancer later on that week. Quote, I had to take care of the funeral arrangements and things like that. One of the most trying tasks a pitcher faces is having to wait five days to redeem himself after a loss. Lee Brandt has been waiting nearly four months. He must wait a bit more before the games really mean anything. He may never pitch again in a World Series game. Quote, if we get back to the World Series, sure, then maybe some doubt will creep in, Lee Brandt said. But this pushes me, drives me harder. I have to make this a positive. A little adversity is good. A lot of adversity? I don't know. This is closer to being a lot of adversity than a little. Fast forward to 1992. He also lost Game 6 of the 1992 World Series to the Toronto Blue Jays. So, in Game 6 losses. Time, or did, did he start Game 6? I believe he started Game okay, 6. At least he lost it in the way that he was used to pitching. The game, the game six here was tough, man. He gets put in. He started game one. That was his first relief appearance of that season. That was a tough one for Charlie Lee Brandt. I mean, it is. Charlie Lee Brandt is God, on a list. Because it set up the greatest game seven of all time. There, this might be a Mackie and Joe Rami pecking order or a, or a cliche Mount Rushmore we should do. Athletes who are otherwise very, very good, but they are remembered for the bad, like Bill sure. Buckner, for instance, sure. is on the is yeah. maybe like the center of this list. I don't know if Charlie Liebrandt makes the final list of four, but Charlie Liebrandt was a damn good pitcher for like 15 years in the major leagues. Yeah, he's very solid. World Series in 1985, and he's remembered for moping off the mound game six after Puckett's walk. As Judd said, too, it sets up the greatest game seven in World Series history. It was kind of interesting as they were going through the middle innings, saying like, yeah, and if the Twins do win tonight, it'll be Jack Morris versus John Smoltz, and who knows who the heck would win that game. That's what Jack Buck says, exactly. fantastic. I was like, I love it. They're like, it'll be the first World Series game seven in four years since the Cardinals and Twins. And, uh, oh, by the way, did you guys watch enough of that game to observe the uh, strike zone of, I believe it was Ed Monahue? It was pretty wide. Herbeck was chirping at him a couple times. And Herbeck was right. And it wasn't just wide. It was wide and low. But he didn't call the high strike. Mm. So there, there were some definite high strikes that he didn't call. And he's calling every low strike. And the only other thing is... The guy from the Braves who got screwed the absolute worst by them not winning in six games, or heck, seven games. No doubt. Second baseman, do you guys recall Mark Lemke? How can you oh, get yeah. that guy out? Mark Lemke hit 417 in six games, so he played in six games of the seven in that World Series. Gentlemen, he went 10 for 24. He had three triples and knocked in four runs. Yeah. The MVP with beyond a shadow of a doubt if the Atlanta Braves finished that thing off in okay. either game six or seven. Can I say that 
I don't feel bad for the Braves really at all for a lot of reasons because they went on to win 14 division championships. They only had one World Series win over that stretch. Like that's the upset that the Braves didn't win more World Series. Their team only got better. They added Greg Maddox. Like after the 91 World Series, they added Fred McGriff and Greg Maddox. Oh, the pitching staff went nuts, yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. But here's another key question. Mm-hmm. Is Terry Pendleton's 1991 campaign one of the most suspicious in baseball history? Have you guys ever done the digging on Terry Pendleton? Not really. Who also played in the 1987 World Series for the Cardinals. He didn't play, though, right? I, I thought he and Jack... He was injured? I thought he was in, injured in that, that series and didn't play in the 87 World Series. He was a nice player. So, he was a nice player. But Terry Pendleton won the MVP in 1991, okay? All right. This was Terry Pendleton's career. I'm going to give you his stats leading up to his age 30 season in 1991, okay? Mm-hmm. He was a 259 career hitter. He had 44 career home runs in almost 1,000 games to that point, And uh, an OPS of 664. So, he was like... Just a mediocre player. Sure. In fact, the year before he batted 230 with an on base percentage of 277, and he had six home runs. Just not a good season with the Cardinals in 1990. 1991 comes along, and Terry Pendleton leads the major leagues with 187 hits, a 319 batting average. He hits 22 home runs, more than twice as many as any other season in his career to that point. Mm-hmm. Scores 94, drives in 86, wins the MVP. Mm-hmm. His OPS was 880, which was over 100 points higher than any other year to that point in his career. He also had a great 1992 season when he made his only All-Star game. And then after that, he just kind of went back to being a pretty good but not amazing player. We never, like, we always talk about, in that era, we talk about uh, Brady Anderson and I was gonna Lenny say, Dykstra. But, like, Terry Pendleton's if, 1991 season is very bro- suspicious. If you're broaching the subject of PEDs in the early 90s as we do this episode, it's ending at a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> She's wrapping up at the perfect time. I see. Hey, let's get Herbie uh, back on the phone. Hey, let's, Kent. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's. Game six of the 91 World Series. So, Gant was out, right? He was out? Like I was going to say, if we're going to go down that path, we're really... That's a wrap. Yeah, that's hey, it, everybody. Hey, we'll see you those, tomorrow night. Remember those All great right. Twins teams, okay? Let's get future Commissioner Bud Selig on the phone. <laughs> the arm motion. Into deep left center for Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow night. All right, final minute here of this episode. Game 6, 91. Who did him, who didn't? Any final thoughts? <laughs> no. No. Just, I got my list here, guys. It's in my back pocket. You will stay away. I loved the uh, caught stealing Brian Harper in the top of the 11th. It's the play before the play that set up the one we all remember. That's outstanding. And I think that, was a, that was a failed. There was supposed to be a bunt on, and batter pulled the oh, bunt back. Last thing, ball, baby. Puckett told Chili on deck before the, the home run, I'm going to bunt. And Chili said, the bleep you are, send us home. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Chili Davis. All right, for Declan Goff on the board, Judd Zolgad, Derek Wetmore on the Scorner Twin Show, I am Phil Mackey, and this has been another episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind here on Score North and the free Score North app.